welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I am one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I do data engineering and machine learning at Databricks. And I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Ben Wilson. I built stuff so you don't have to at Databricks. Thank you for your service once again. So today we're speaking with Eric Daimler. Uh, Eric started off in the financial world and then became a professor at Carnegie Mellon where he taught software engineering practice. Um, after that, he did a million interesting things. One of them was working as a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow for Machine Learning and Robotics. Uh, that's pretty insane, and we're going to get into that in a bit. Um, and currently, he's the CEO of Connexus, which provides adaptable data consolidation. And one of their core innovations is developing a migration-as-a-service API, which sort of handles metadata management and a few other things. So, Eric, what made you decide to found Connexus? <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun place to start. You know, it, uh, uh, it has, has many different uh, points of luck, we will really say. There's, uh, there's right place, right time of, of being in the White House when this research got funded at MIT uh, by one of my co-founders. Uh, it was... Uh, People around the government uh, knowing me and liking me, <laughs> so yeah, uh, so they would tell me stuff, and then you know, lastly, when they tell me stuff, I would understand it. So that's kind of a third point of luck, I guess. I had the right training to to hear what they were going to say. Uh, you know, one of the fantastic parts about being in the U.S. government, besides the the, the genuine feeling of service to uh, to Americans and, and and their allies, is this very large uh, perspective. Of, of what is present and what is coming in the future. Uh, the, the scale of the problems uh, and therefore the scale of the solutions uh, implemented by the agencies within the U.S. government, most notably the Defense Department, are uh, uh, really not found in very many places. So it gives uh, a, a particular vantage point uh, with which to uh, view the future. This research that got funded out of MIT is based on a discovery in mathematics. Uh, so, you know, laws of nature doesn't really get any more fundamental of that. Uh, and that is what I saw as the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the place we needed to look to break the, uh, the, the manual processes that were uh, in evidence for many of the uh, AI implementations that I saw in industry uh, and in government. So that had me motivated to, when I left the White House, get uh, personally invested uh, into this research and explore the, the commercial opportunities, and then ultimately putting in uh, more of my own money and, and jumping in full-time, bringing some of my friends along. Was there a, a triggering moment where you, like, thought to yourself, we need this tool right now, or was it slowly built up over time? Well, I could see us needing this tool uh, right away. You know, how this got implemented, and I'm not saying anything out of school, is uh, looking at uh, airplanes within the Defense Department. You know, we as American taxpayers spent a great deal of money uh, uh, developing the F-16, and, and kind of like Windows XP, where Many, many, many iterations get rid of all the faults in the underlying infrastructure. Uh, uh, the F-16 uh, went through uh, many, many years of testing. Unfortunately, when we then wanted to go to next generation fighters, we had to throw the whole thing out. We couldn't transfer uh, any of the schemas, any, really anything we learned from the F-16 
to the F-22 or the F-35. That cost us a good deal of money uh, and critically a good deal of time. So besides the Defense Department working on new solutions, NASA also realizes that their 10-year cycles for project delivery uh, can't sustain themselves. They had come to this research to say, uh, our, our history as NASA has never compressed that 10-year cycle. We need to do something different. Uh, this is a solution to that. This, this fundamental law of nature in category theory, abstract math, right, related to graph theory, kind of adjacent to type theory, that is what is going to allow uh, the scaling of these formal methods that previously just was uh, was unavailable and, and had us go down these, these paths of, of ad hoc implementations. I have so many questions for you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> on a non-tactical note, uh, question one is, in a position like advising the federal government, and particularly the White House, decision makers and policymakers, when you're brought with questions about what are the possibilities of utilizing cutting-edge technology, which could be stuff that's been around for a long time, but the people that are in positions of power are not necessarily educated about what that means because it's, it's highly specialized, you know, knowledge of that. What were your most successful methodologies when somebody came up to ask about is this thing possible by using this technology, like AI as a broad term? How, well, I'd like to know what your thought process is when you're breaking down a problem to explain it back to them about what, whether it is or isn't possible in order to give them the sufficient amount of information for them to make an effective policy decision. Well, there's a lot in there. Uh, that's, a, that's a good sophisticated question, but unfortunately, it's, uh, there's, no, there's no short answer uh, to that. Uh, you know, there's a range of expertise that I find. Uh, what, I came into the U.S. government maybe as, as cynical as anybody about, about what, what's, what's evidence in these large bureaucracies. I was very happily surprised that at the, at the top layers, you know, the levels at which I interacted, there's some very smart people and very motivated to, to contribute to the American people for not a lot of remuneration, let me tell you. I mean, it, these are not well-paid jobs, and the, these people should get some multiple uh, of, their, of their salaries out in, in private enterprise, and probably we should correct that even working for the government. Uh, so, so a lot of times, uh, I could be talking to people uh, as equals. Now, when I go to elected representatives, you know, they're not, they're lawyers, mostly. Right. You know, they're not expected to know anything of technology. And, and as we know, if, if you really don't understand uh, a technical area, you know, you're prone to think that what is hard is really easy and the easy things are actually pretty hard. There's a fundamental disconnect, you know, absent uh, some level of understanding. You know, I was really uh, pleased that uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, when, when he was on the uh, Supreme Court, uh, uh, I, I had a good interaction with that guy once at a, at a dinner party, and oh wow, he uh, he he impressed me. Uh, you know, just you know, I don't think I've even been in in the most uh, technically adept circles, and just suddenly over a glass of wine started started getting into a conversation with somebody about 
uh, uh, probability, you know, conditional probabilities. And like Justin Fryer, like was right there with me, like genuinely asking questions and genuinely being able to hear me. It was it was really uh, quite disorienting, but also uh, really heartening. Uh, probably one of the only times I had a glass of wine and felt better afterwards. Uh, uh, it, it was uh, uh, it, so that that's just a way of saying that there's there's a wide variety uh, uh, of audiences to hear whatever whatever is going to be said. You know, the staff uh, of, of congressional representatives or, or senators certainly going to be more educated than the elected rep- representatives themselves. Uh, but what I found uh, effective was in telling stories. You know, one, one of my uh, PhD advisors a long, long time ago just talked about uh, the degree to which uh, you, you need to tell your story with farm animals. And that, that, that always stuck in my head. Uh, uh, you know, not to not to denigrate the, the the members of Congress, although some of them deserve it. Um, uh, but I I did find myself uh, relating uh, uh, very simple stories to talk about AI. That that is what I found to be effective. You know, people aren't going to remember facts. People aren't going to remember logic. You know, as it said, they're going to remember how 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 you felt, and 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 they're going to remember the story. What's your success rate when communicating these these complex ideas? Uh, uh, short answer is I don't know. Uh, uh, right, I don't know if the if the elected representatives heard me. Uh, I would say among uh, uh, among colleagues across the executive branch, you know, the people with whom I interacted, you know, peers in the, the Defense Department, peers in the uh, Energy Department or Transportation, you know, those people uh, we could have a, a good dialogue with. Those are those are smart people. You know, actually, one of my colleagues from Carnegie Mellon. Uh, was was at the uh, uh, was at the FTC when when I was uh, in the White House. So you know we have these sort of interesting interactions. You know my role was uh, I, I could often translate between uh, leadership and and technical experts in a way that uh, people didn't consider to be threatening because you know I didn't have a career there, so I didn't have the proverbial dog in the hunt. Uh, uh, you, you know it's it's interesting to know. Uh, you know maybe I'm just a little slower than others, but you know, the, the, the Secretary of Transportation does not have a direct line to the FAA. You know, so if you're talking about next generation air traffic control, that's not a direct conversation between the chief scientist of the FAA and the Secretary of Transportation. So to determine what's real in the, in the difficulties of implementing next generation traffic control, who does, who's trusted to do that translation? Those are the types of roles uh, that I found myself uh, engaged in being a trusted uh, interlocutor for for technical issues to uh, to leadership. It's also interesting. One of the early analogies that you brought to the discussion about fighter generation, construction, and design. Um, I remember vividly a conversation <clears throat> that I had in the Arabian Gulf in 2004 with. Uh, a table full of our, our strike fighter uh, pilots, the F-A-18 Super Hornet guys. And we were sitting down and somebody had just seen a movie recently. I don't remember which one it was. It was terrible. But it's basically uh, about AI taking control of fighter jets. And we had all watched it together and they're just ragging on it, trashing it. There's like, there's no way you could get a system that could, could ever compete with a human. And then, you know, the last couple of years, people are like, no, we have, we don't just have AI controlled drones. Um, 
we have the capability to do hive you know communication amongst you know ai agents that are basically trained with advanced reinforcement learning and when you start seeing the perspective of a sixth generation fighter that could be out there with you know the human kill order being uh you know an interlock before uh engagement i'm interested to know somebody who's been on the inside of policy making decisions like this where this could be you know could fundamentally change the global landscape with if technology is applied in that way to national defense what's the general consensus not, not consensus but what's what's the the pulse uh, among policymakers and also the people in the, the executive branch who are you know career professionals deciding these things I think there. this goes back to the point about what we think is easy is hard, what we think is hard is easy. I think there's a misconception on what AI is going to provide in these uh, uh, theaters. Uh, you know, that we often think of killer robots, and to some extent maybe they, they can be, but I think where AI is going to be providing the most value is at the command and control level. You know, we're going to be introducing autonomous vehicles of all kinds, autonomous weapons, but also logistics, inside a theater where uh, they, those, the, the speed with which they've been introduced to the battlefield may not be familiar to the leadership or may, may preclude familiarity to leadership. So the leadership needs something else to be able to understand the, you know, the, the panoply of resources available to them uh, in any particular area at a higher velocity than we have typically been used to. That's the value of AI, not just uh, bringing a drone around or or having some sensors on a humanoid looking uh, looking robot. I think I think that's going to be a misconception. It's interesting the F18 uh, uh, pilots would be the ones that would bring this up because an F22 or F35 pilot it would understand their airplanes are actually unflyable uh, right. without AI. Yep. Those are augmented to some to such an extent that they're just un, unrecognizable to 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 an F16 pilot or an F18 pilot. You know the flying wings and those those were, were available not just because of compute, but also because of discoveries in math. You know, the fast Fourier transform uh, was what enabled the flying wings of the what the eighties, nineties, two thousands to to get airborne safely, uh, as opposed to the the flying wings we saw back in the boy, you know, before we were all born. <laughs> you know, where, where they would you know they'd come up and they'd crash, right? Yeah. So we had flying wings a long time ago, but. The, the, the technology in, in all of its manifestation through the laws of nature of math or in compute and in algos uh, enabled these, these new developments. So I, I, I use that as evidence to suggest that AI is going to play a different role uh, than just substituting uh, the pilots. Right. And it really is about blast radius. And that's, that's something that we don't do a lot of discussions with you know, DOD customers. We have them, but Michael and I don't talk to them. Um, but regardless of the industry that you're in, it's a common theme that we end up discussing with people who are looking to monopolize on the power of what these systems can do, not just follow the hype and then trying to play catch up to what other people are doing, but the forward thinking people in certain industries that are saying, yeah, we could build this cool bot that does this thing, or we could use an LLM to you know, automate this little thing. The forward thinkers are the ones saying, how can we train systems that can distill information at the rate at which we can create and ingest it in order to 
basically get these systems to do what we currently do way faster and with having a much broader picture. And exactly as you said, with that battlefield landscape, when you're talking about sensor data in, I mean, I remember, you know, being out in 2003 deployed to a war zone and you look around at how many ships are out there, how many aircraft are flying sorties, how many troops are on the ground, you know, during the shock and hour campaign of the invasion of Iraq. It's, a ridiculous amount of data that's coming in, that's being generated. And that's old Aegis weapon system stuff that's that's on the battlefield there. And if you had some system that could help humans really figure all that out in real time and do simulation modeling and say, what are the probabilities of the best method of attack here? Or where, where are we exposed? And being able to calculate that in near real time. Mm. You, you said a, a lot of things uh in in that 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 are worth worth addressing uh, we we often will will talk about speed of data acquisition and that's all true but if just speed of data acquisition was the problem then equity markets would have a lot of difficulty right we we you know we have time sliced uh, uh equity market transactions to a point where it's really in a different league, you know, with with high frequency and, and stuff, which I don't, I've never dabbled into. That's that's a, a, a data pipe that's that's formidable, but but one we have, you know, to some extent solved or at least at least addressed. What's different here is not just this exponential growth of data or or the velocity, but as as you point out, it's this exponential growth of also data sources, which can freak people out. And so if you have an exponential growth of data sources and exponential growth of data, you know, the intersection of that where knowledge is created, you know, you're creating the models based on this, uh, you know, that's just a, uh, a combinatorial explosion uh, that, that people can't deal with. And that that's not just a compute problem. You know, that's also a kind of a modeling problem. You know, how do you actually have the math so that that's tractable? And, you know, edge compute doesn't, uh, doesn't fully address that. And we, we address this issue um, uh, or the, you know, the original research out of MIT that became Conexus addressed this issue where uh, we need drones in the air and in real time, we need to update the, uh, the database schema upon which the, the, the drones are operating. You know, that's for obviously a change in uh, the, the, the landscape of the battlefield, but it's also for a security uh, uh, protocol. So you, you're just constantly... Uh, uh, correcting these queries, and so correcting the, uh, my, uh, evolving the queries, you know, uh, uh, migrating the schema, you know, that's 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 a different level of thinking than just being able to take a bigger hose uh, of data in, and it's in that uh, heterogeneity of the space in which we need to operate that I think the world is going to orient over the next five to ten years. You know, it's not just about the speed of automation. It's about leadership in, in, in all of its manifestations in all organizations, beginning to respect and understand all the different data sources and how they need to then take advantage of what they learn from those data sources and the, and the changing world and then respond more quickly. Like I'm talking about the Defense Department, like I'm talking about NASA. Because if they do it in the same old way of just dedicating another thousand or ten thousand people from Accenture or Deloitte into a problem, you know, they're gonna come up with a solution long after the opportunity has passed. Interesting thing to bring up about mutability 
uh, and access to mutable data sources. Do you do you think that there is something that's going to happen in say 10, 20 years uh, before twenty years is up, where we're going to be working with algorithms that are self-selective that are going to say, I know I have basically indexes of all the data that I have access to, or that I know how to get access to these data sets. Uh, and it could be multiple dis- disparate data sets. We're talking same analogy we're using with battlefield communications with drones. It says, hey, I know I'm not currently ingesting data from, you know, live weather satellites or ingesting uh, you know, I'm flying over this area that I've never been before. My model doesn't have pre-training on what to identify for visual recognition, but I know where to go and to acquire data that tells me about the cultural customs of the people from this region that I'm in to determine what would constitute a threat or is there an indicator of clothing, headdress style, haircut style, something that would help me better identify the the capabilities of threat analysis within that region. Do you see stuff like that as fully autonomous? And is that one of the things that your pro- your your company's product is aiming to solve? Well, uh, you know, it is hard. You know, Jeffrey Hinton says this, and and you know, he, he wasn't the first, but but you know, maybe there's the most notable to say, predicting twenty years is hard. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, predicting timelines kind of in general is hard. You know, predicting two years pretty pretty easy. You know, we, we kind of all make our living on 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 being able to predict the next two years. Maybe five. You know, after that, it gets a little fuzzy. Uh, and and you know, just a little anecdote. You know, to the, to the degree to which that's fuzzy. You know, we're s- smart people uh, that probably would have been challenged in the year two thousand two, two thousand three, to have been able to predict five years out that there would be a new class of developer developer called an app developer. Uh, uh, you know, and, and today we would, nobody could have predicted there would be a, a job called influencer. You know, like we just can't, it's hard. We can generally get the shape of it, but we can't get the specifics done very well. I, I remember working with a friend at IBM uh, where they predicted to some extent the, uh, uh, the, the deprecating of web pages, but they didn't think apps where they didn't identify apps as being the thing that that uh, took them over uh, in their in the power. And th- this is the problem: we can get the generally the shape, but not the not the specifics. So I can I can identify kind of the, the general shape of what you're describing. The general shape is that uh, we're going to have not just these collaborative automated agents uh, next to us. And ChatGPT just as a is a user friendly example of of technology we've had for for a bit. We're going to have that be ubiquitous. So we can all try to imagine just what that would look like if you have ubiquitous collaborative agents. The, the, the easy uh, expression that would fall out of that is that we will soon have just something around us, not physically, but digitally, uh, uh, representing our values in the world and kind of interacting about how we want to uh, take in data in all of its manifestations. What you're describing in in saying there's new data sets that aren't yet, yet imported, I'm I'm saying that that today is the difficulty. So I, I'm expecting way before 20 years. If I was going to put a prediction on it, I might say five to 10. Mm-hmm. These data sets will begin to be uh, uh, brought together 
in a way that is uh, uh, accessible. But as we're saying, you know, the, 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 the level of expansion of the new data uh, continues to increase and the data sources are increasing. So that's, a, you know, that's an ever-changing, uh, ever-changing problem. Uh, what, what Connexus does is Connexus scales these formal methods so that you have symbolic uh, AI combined with probabilistic or stochastic AI that then has a hybrid AI. And, that, and that's ultimately where I think the world is going. Uh, I'm not alone in that prediction. Uh, and there's other companies working on that. But uh, you know, you're not going to design an airplane uh, on a large language model. You're not going to operate a power plant on a large language model. Yeah, you're laughing. But you know, no, people think not. it's like somehow the, the solution to everything. We need to get, have a large language model. Uh, you know, and they're fantastic. Uh, uh, and they, they certainly uh, uh, let our imagination run wild. But you need both. And that, that's what I, I'm going to predict uh, over, the next, over the medium term. Yeah, just the other day I was doing testing with GPT-4's new features with the retraining that they did. And I, I'm sort of known for asking really crazy, stupid questions to evaluate technology like that. Um, a lot of it's humor-based just to see, like, hey, can I confuse this thing to the point where it starts hallucinating in an amusing way so that we know where guards can be or how long does it take to start hallucinating? Because our users are going to be using these things that we're building. Um, but as a, it's funny that you mentioned the, the power plant, uh, my formal education is in nuclear engineering. So, uh, I started asking it, I was like, all right, here's your guard, your guardrails. I don't want a pressurized water reactor. I want a boiling water reactor, but I don't want to have to deal with an excessive amount of uranium 235 byproduct waste from this. So please define, like, please try to design a, a revolutionary new reactor design. It got about five in, like exchanges between me and the agent before it started to. <clears throat> it came up with some interesting ideas that I think we're about four hundred years off on technology and R and D. Um, but was, my, my favorite one was um, basically taking an like an, a new revolutionary design of a fusion reactor that's not based on a tokamak, but something that would be, you know would have stable magnetic containment within the actual confinement field at temperatures that a thorium-based, you know, salt reactor would be operating, which is, you know, 800 degrees Celsius. And it blew my mind that it came up with that. And then I started asking it, like, okay, can you give me a design, like a physical layout? And what would the components be? What materials would we need? And it it rapidly got to the point where it's like, we haven't discovered that yet as a species and material science, this could take millennia to figure this out. Thank you for being honest with me. But yeah, if you ask it something that you're genuinely curious about as a layperson, I think they're, they're fantastic. Or if they've been specifically trained to do a task that is deterministic, like write code for me. That's that's logical thing that it has millions of examples for. But when you try it to get it to do, you know, come up with ideas that are that are valid or, you know, go into the, the weeds a little bit about something that you know about, it's pretty, pretty apparent pretty quickly. Like, okay, you're just making things up like this. There's no way this is possible. Just making things up. That's the first time you got that about LLM. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are all fundamentally probabilistic. And so there, there's never going to be a solution for LLMs that I see 
uh, uh, that uh, you're going to be willing to bet your life on. And that's, right. it's just, it's just based, it's in the technology. And it's funny that you brought up n- nuclear engineering, which is uh, probably the first complex system that required uh, computation for op- your operations. You know, that was oh, yeah. uh, uh, the first uh, uh, manifestation of, of something that we can't reason about. It's too complex. Uh, I, I think now, just a generation or two later, more and more of our world is going to bump up or really is bumping up uh, against those sort of limitations where these areas are just too difficult to reason about power plants, too difficult to reason about airplanes, too difficult to reason about rockets, too difficult to reason about. And you need AIs to come help humans uh, manage these systems. And and the framework is perfect for for thinking about nuclear uh, engineering. Uh, Semiconductors are another one. Uh, uh, You know, when we had the, with the Pentium 5, a disaster, I'll call it, you know, back in the 90s, you know, there were only, I think it was like 3 million or 5 million transistors on the on the chip mm-hmm. uh, right. when that error was discovered. So Intel had to go back and redo the way in which they, uh, uh, the, the, the discipline that they applied to their formal methods. And only that way could we scale where, you know, these things now have, what, 3 billion, 5 billion transistors on them, something like that. Uh, you know, had they not scaled formal methods in, in semiconductor design, you know, it wouldn't be a linear progression of errors that we would experience, right? As, as you know, right? and this right. audience would know, it's an exponential explosion uh, of possible errors. So that's the future is you, you need a mix. When you're doing exploratory work, LLMs can be fine. Uh, you're doing protein folding, you know, LLMs can be great. Uh, but, but scaling expert systems when experts are required, such as nuclear engineering, you know, <laughs> there's no substitute uh, for that. That's what that's what we need. Yeah, when I was up at uh, the nuclear power training unit uh, in Boston Spa, New York, the they have a system set up there, um, and I'm going to try not to talk about classified information, but basically, it's a simulator that they use to design the next generation of of core. And it's also used to train operators and stuff. They're like, hey, here's how you operate a reactor safely. And it's just a computer, but we're treating it like it's the real thing. So don't do anything stupid. Um, but during the testing phases, they're evaluating through these computers. And I remember going to this interactive you know, setup, and it's in this massive building. But the room that you sit in looks exactly like the engine room, the engine control room in a submarine. And so it's very familiar. It looks exactly what you're like what you operate when you're on watch and training students. You come over and then you either do training or you're asked to come in to help the research scientists who are designing the next generation of core and reconfigure everything in the back with this massive it looks like something out of a sci-fi movie. It's really cool. But behind that control room, there's a massive supercomputer, like truly massive, that's running the simulation. And I ended up asking uh, a couple of the scientists that I'm always curious asking people the wrong questions, but I was like, well, how do you actually figure out what the power is going to be? Like if I, I was like, hey, we're shutting everything else down. I just want to, you know, try some things. And they're like, yeah, go ahead. We'll we're turn off the recording and everything. I was like, if I just shim the rods out as fast as I can at, at high power and then just start turning coolant pumps off, how do you, how does this computer simulate that? And how do you know that we can set different power levels over time based on the rate of rod withdrawal. And they're like, well, you know, 
we know how that is because the physical reactors are built based on that model. And I was like, wait a minute, you have the soup, the supercomputer is, is designing what, like the shape of things in there and channel dimensions. And, and they're like, it's simulating the amount of polish we need to apply to the metal that goes into the intake into the core and the exact dimensions within the micrometer of where all this stuff needs to be. And they're like, furthermore, this supercomputer figures out when they're building the fuel rods within fractions of a millimeter where to put each pellet of which size and mass. And it blew my mind thinking about that. I'm like, how long does that take to compute? Like about a month to do a simulation on this hardware. And this is back in you know 2000 or 1999. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, when we start thinking about those processes around something that important. You get that wrong, you get Chernobyl, right? You know, a, a reactor that's not designed with safety controls that can prevent another Chernobyl disaster. But if we start applying those same principles with what your company is is researching and working on, and yeah. uh, I'm a huge believer, by the way, um, you start applying that to other use cases that people haven't traditionally thought of. I think that's the sort of thing that, furthers us as a species more than anything else hmm. thank you we agree yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of opportunity that gets uncovered when you bring these experts together with yeah. different views and what what is missed in the in the in the media's portrayal uh, of ai is that there are multiple valid perspectives we we can't have one golden rule about about a golden source of truth among these experts. You know, you can have a nuclear engineer and a mechanical engineer and a civil engineer and a geologist, and they all have different stances for the same thing. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of a particular use case we we have also in energy. Uh, you can't. You have to actually have the AI generate the 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 consensus uh, among these. Because if you have the engineers uh, work on a manual consensus. First of all, they're going to take months. But, but second of all, you're going to lose the nuance that you spent money and time collecting from all the, of these engineers. They just have different valid perspectives. That's a future uh, of collaboration. The, the future of collaboration is having these multiple experts using the AI to collaborate. That's what, what, that's what Connexus is working on for, for a variety of complex uh, applications. So if we have a mixture of experts, AI system, that experts are interacting with? This is a really stupid question, so bear with me. What happens if we start applying this, this use case to things that are not of the STEM realm and we start applying it to things of, that apply to the very fabric of human nature and the mixture of experts starts <laughs> making decisions that simulates basically a conscience and starts challenging us as a species. How do you think that would define the future of humanity about saying, hey, we're relying on the decisions of these systems and they're telling us to de-escalate this thing that we're doing. Like, don't go to war. Don't create this chaos. Don't kill each other. That's bad. That's not good for the, you know, the furtherance. If we put ideals and goals into these systems over time, that are preservation of humanity, you know, be beneficent to people. And what happens when, they, when these systems understand a more ideal goal for humanity and starts aligning us to that? How do you yeah. think 
human nature's reaction is to something like that. Yeah, I, if I could answer this a slightly different way, uh, I uh, I think this this issue about consciousness or sentience uh, is is uh, uh, is it actually uh, it can find a better framing, and the and the better framing comes in comes in in, in, in two parts. We'll say uh, you know one part is uh, sentience is unlikely in our lifetimes, and the reason is because fundamentally semiconductors are deterministic. Even if we have probabilistic algos built on top of them, they're fundamentally deterministic. I'm talking to neuroscientists a fair amount about this, the, the conclusion really is that the difference between, we'll say, semiconductors, then plants, then animals, then humans, is that the, the way in which to have sentience is probably most suggestive from some biological component. It's probably no accident that our brain and our nervous system work in unison, uh, and th- we have a de- deterministic nervous system and a probabilistic brain uh, that, that, that suggests that sent, a sentient being is probably going to have more uh, of a biological uh, 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 expression than, than anything we see today. And so we probably don't want to be too concerned about these computers, as, as we now know them, becoming sentient. The other part of that argument is that there's a lot of bad stuff that can happen with just deterministic computers. You know, we don't, we don't have to look very far. We can look at, we have many examples uh, about how we could, we could get manipulated uh, uh, and, and that's gonna get worse uh, with, with, with the technology that's already in front of us. We don't need, a, we don't even know, have to imagine uh, sentient beings doing something uh, outside of that. And so we, we, we need to look at what's already right in front of us to be able to address what's in the future. You know, Nick Bostrom, um, uh, the, the philosopher who talks also about the danger of sentience, kind of the existential danger of sentience, has this concept that we can dedicate some amount of our time to thinking about this existential risk. And I agree with that. Some amount of our time, some amount. Uh, and, and that can be uh, uh, as, as much of a kind of a ham-fisted approach as having an, a, a massive off switch somewhere, but it probably has some more reasonable nuanced uh, approaches, such as being able to audit code. Even experts like like in your audience being being having some uh, proprietary access to commercial code before it goes into production, or doing it in a zero trust way, the way we do credit scoring. That's that's a reasonable short term solution to some of the applications of AI that we can apply today to keep us from uh, going down a bad path. What does biological mean? So in the context of the sentience, that, that we will not have these, these, these entities be chip-based. I, I, they, will, they will have right. some wow. uh, more uh, uh, analogous uh, uh, chemical uh, manifestation uh, to, to our nervous system and our brain than a computational uh, manifestation or a computational equivalence to, to our brain. And you think they would plug into computers or would they be a sort of a separate entity? Man, you are so getting outside of my expertise. My PhD is in computer science and around AI, not, not in biology. So I, I am channeling other other experts. I, I, you know, there's other people that have said that you know the, the next war or the next big war uh, with robots is going to be difficult because we will have a hard time distinguishing them from us. Uh, you know, that's an interesting way to think about how we might start augmenting ourselves with new devices that that kind of transform our being into something that 
uh, uh, today's humans uh, may not recognize. That's that's an interesting line of inquiry, uh, I think. But you know, bringing it back to today, I'd say as you know, solving real problems. You know, what we're trying to do is is bring together massively heterogeneous complex systems to have us all just make better decisions. You know, that's that's what we need to do today. We don't want to be dropping stuff on the floor that we spent time and money collecting. Uh, you know, a lot of people are misled about the degree to which they're taking advantage of AI because they have these fancy dashboards or they have these fancy data lakes. Um, but it, 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 we often talk about throwing all your books in a library and then sorting by color. Uh, uh, you know, it doesn't help you retrieve the data. Uh, that's what you need to be thinking about using and using it with speed. That's that's solving today's problems. That's that's what we're we're working on. It's kind of short to medium term problems. Got it. And then I have one more. Then I'll kick it back over to Ben. I know he has one million. Um, <laughs> we were talking about something that was really fascinating to me in that hallucinations are not innovation. What is the difference in your guys? The difference between hallucinations and innovation. I, uh, you know, we're, we're making up facts, I guess, right? That's not, that's not something we're terribly interested in unless you want to do a creative exploration. So, you know, as Ben even talked about, you know, bringing up new ideas is something that LLMs are kind of manifestly good at uh, uh, in a variety of ways. We don't really yet know uh, what is going to be the best use case for those. Everybody's still exploring. You know, we had thought a decade ago, even that recently, that we would first see an automation of manual tasks and then you know, white collar tasks and then creative tasks. And the, the current thinking is that actually might go in reverse. You know, we don't know. Yeah, to add to that, from my perspective of some of the places that I've worked before, when I was at Samsung, when we were just, um, it's funny that you brought up semiconductor chips because that's what I was doing. Um, but we, when I w- was working there, we were going from the 45 to 32 to 28 to 20 mm-hmm. nanometer manufacturing process over a period of the five years that I worked there. And each of those processes within, when going from 45 to 32, you're taking everything you learned in 45 and you're saying, I have all this data, petabytes of data. It, it's a ridiculous amount of manufacturing data that you have of running the true production process and you have snapshots of where you started at initial day day zero production, and then all of the changes that you had to do to that manufacturing process across the 1,600 processing steps and three months of time to create one single wafer. <clears throat> you know where you had to make those improvements. But humans have to go in and say, all right, so what did we change on 45 nanometers from start to when we got 95% production yield, we, we started with 1% yield or 10% yield. So that list of, of changes, they're not, they're not binary. Um, it's not like, hey, we started doing this thing or we changed this one parameter in this one recipe from 1,000 watts down to 950 watts and that, that fixed this problem. It's never like that. It's it's a probabilistic distribution of that change, how it affects potential downstream changes. And because of those interactions, when you're evaluating all of that, uh, there's an entire team at these factories that's called integration engineering. And this is what they do is they look at this stuff and they build the 
design them experiments where they have their own call them boats of wafers, 25 wafers in a boat. And of those 25 wafers, you run specific experiments in order to, through a design of experiments process and say, what was the actual impact? And I'm going to do metrology on all of these and cut them up and, you know, tunneling electron microscope scans, SEMs, uh, atomic force microscopes. And you collect all the data you can to understand the interactions between these major changes within a certain range of processing. And that's what you're talking about, Eric, is like, how do you leverage all of that knowledge and, you know, use that probabilistic modeling to say, what should we do next? And that process from 45 to 32, that's nine months of time. And there's 300 humans involved in that. That's just the manufacturing. That's not designing the chip. That's yeah. a whole different team of, you know, a couple hundred people that do that. So having AI agents that allow you to shortcut that human capital investment, which now there's tools that they're using for this, this type of stuff. And I've talked to a couple of, you know, manufacturing groups uh, while I've been at Databricks. They're like, oh yeah, we're using, you know, this PyTorch model that does this. And then we're using this, you know, uh, basically a Markov chain simulation in order to determine what our DOE should be. Mm-hmm. And I always get, you know, interested about that. Like, well, how did that, like, yeah, I understand that technology is really old and what you're mm-hmm. using, but what did that do for your engineering process? How many, how many weeks did that save you? And usually they're like, no, it saved us months of time because before we were using spreadsheets to figure this out and running stuff manually. So yeah, I a hundred percent agree that this is the future. The world is going to catch up to, realizing that they need all of this stuff because if you don't do this this isn't a small incremental change this isn't like oh i now have a, a fancy model that that runs a chat bot my customers are going to be delighted it's not going to disrupt your industry but if you're using what we're talking about right now and apply it to your business properly that's stuff like shaving years off of processes to get to that right answer in days you know, it's not just shaving the, the I, I love what you're saying. You're shaving time off. You're obviously shaving a great deal of cost off. You're, you're making sure you're not going to introduce new errors from these manual processes. Uh, but uh, often you can discover new opportunities because of the speed with which you are now adapting to this new world. You know, I, I love how you're talking about Excel. You know, I think the world would get freaked out if they realized how much of large businesses ran on Excel still today in 2023. It's really quite, quite weird. Uh, you know, we work with a couple of airplane manufacturers that uh, have formal methods for defining a fuselage or a wing uh, and an engine, uh, but they do not have a way of bringing those together uh, in a formal, dependable way. So they just have to test and test and test and use these Monte Carlo or markup simulations. Uh, uh, and test and test some more. And then they still have failures uh, that can often be catastrophic. What, how that manifests often is that different engineers or different components could have this common term called vibration, for example. And it's really important to know whether vibration from the engine to the wing is additive or does it cancel each other out? And then the wing and the engine to the fuselage, additive or cancels each other out. That's the nature of these different interpretations of the systems that just can't be fully represented in just a simulation. You know, that's where we're going uh, with, with the scaling of formal methods enabled by category theory uh, that then gets combined with 
these probabilistic methods to make sure no new errors are introduced for manual processes and to radically speed up the, uh, the, these, these, uh, these, these transformations to uh, uncover new opportunities. So how much of this is going to be open sourced? So Connexus AI has an open source component. That was a, a requirement of the spin up from MIT. So uh, CQL uh, is open source and everybody can go check that out today. If you want the fast version, <laughs> then that's commercial. <laughs> right. And the integrations that are currently in place for saying, it's kind of a loaded question. What are the plans for this to become truly disruptive in industries across the board? We're seeing the most complex organizations uh, adopt this first. So you'll energy, aviation, supply chain, manufacturing, you know, those are the places that are bumping up against these increasing amount of errors. Uh, you know, in one case, we have this large energy company that uh, uh, they said, yeah, Eric, it's lovely that you save us 58 million a year. You know, lovely that you compress our, our time to, to uh, return on capital from a six months to, to a couple of weeks. But what we really cared about is that you eliminated what we discovered was 86 meetings that were created <laughs> at the leadership level uh, from an error that, that could have been prevented had we used our solution. Because there's, there's no amount of money that can eliminate those 86, error, uh, 86 meetings uh, to leadership and the, and the people right, the level right below them. Uh, that's the number that, that I think might be our, uh, uh, our, our, our path to greatness. That's yeah, awesome. that's compelling. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those listeners who aren't aware, uh, certain industries that we've been talking about that I've worked in, um, you know, a lot of people are working like software. You know, they're they're working at a SaaS company or or they're they're doing data science work at a company uh, in the sort of the public space um, or sorry, private sector. But it, you know, you're interacting with human customers. If you ship some bad code or something kind of goes wrong, it's a code reversion, you push a new version, you get production back up and running. It's a couple of days. You'll have to write you know, maybe a, a retrospective on what went wrong, get a slap on the wrist maybe, or you know, you, you go get assigned a bunch of work to go and make sure that never happens again. When something like this happens with design of something in the DoD or in the semiconductor industry or a power plant, those incidents mm -hmm. are handled by regulators. The government comes mm. in and mm. sends federal agents to start asking questions. Uh, you could be looking at an investigation period that lasts many months. And it, it's not just two or three people that have to talk to that. That's the head of the site and maybe the head of the entire organization sitting down. You could get subpoenaed to talk to, in front of Congress and explain what went wrong. So it's a big deal. And yeah, eliminating the errors or the near misses from even being a possibility. That's what I'm most excited about, about this technology and getting out into the world. In As you said, it, the highest level of ubiquity is possible because the smarter that our agents, the smarter that the tools that we build to help us do better things in a better way, it's just going to open us up to capitalize on the one thing that we're all resource constrained on as humans, which is time. 
that's the that's the big deal. Yeah, and we we want to leverage what's what's in our heads uh, and and our, our collaboration with with other humans. That's that's what we want to use AI for. So, Eric, I have another question. Um, we've been talking a lot about the vision of sort of the AI industry, how it will impact. In your perspective, what do you think is going to happen? So it sounds like we're still going to have a lot of human in the loop interactions. Um, some will be automated, but really it's it's more like augmenting human functionality and leaving humans to do the human, funda- fundamentally human thing, which is creativity and, and sort of thinking. Beyond that, what else? What else do you think is going to happen? You know, I, I would say that a little differently uh, because right now, and you know, for a while, we've been augmenting ourselves. You know, we 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 augment ourselves with calculators. Uh, showing up, I don't even have a calculator. But, you know, we always have up on our phones. We augment ourselves with Excel. We augment ourselves in a variety of different ways. Uh, I I think that there, the three choices that I articulate are that uh, uh, you know you either need to participate in your own automation. You know, you need to be uh, uh, making your the implicit explicit and then essentially turning that into code to automate. Or you're going to become uh, uh, a niche player, an artisan, which is cool, right? There's actually a lot of opportunities uh, for artisans and, and niches uh, in, in the world. If you don't do one of those two things and, and just continue down a path of, of, of not continually automating your own tasks, kind of participating in your own obsolescence in a way, and then repeating the process to find new value add, what you're going to find is you're just going to be slapped one day. You know, you're, you, the, the, you know, the world is moving faster. We talked about the data growth, but what's really distinguished in the characteristics of a daily experience is the abruptness of change. You know, jo- jobs have changed for generations, but you used to be able to think of them in terms of generations. You know, the elevator operators, the switchboarder operators, but you begin to get a hint of the the increasing abruptness with which jobs can change when uh, equity market trading floors uh, begin to vanish. You know, the, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange is now just a tourist attraction and a backdrop for media. You know, but you know, because the nature of digital change is when you know people like me, this is what I did for a while, it began to understand you, you used the ML of the time to automate what a treasury bond trader did. It didn't work. It didn't work. And then it didn't work. But then as soon as it did work, I, my boss didn't need to wait until Friday afternoon to fire the staff. Like it just works. It's done. Like, you know, let alone a generation or a year or a month or a week. Like it, it just happens. And that's the nature of digital uh, transformation. So those three choices, you need to, you need to be thinking about how I make my knowledge explicit, a little bit more like machine readable code to the point where it then gets automated and then repeat the cycle for ourselves. That's, that's a prescription I have. Yeah. I usually answer that exact question when, when people pose it, uh, of asking how many people felt that their decision to continue to manufacture and produce iron horseshoes, how happy were they in 1941? Right. right? So if you look in the 1890s, uh, that's what there were loads of those people. There were loads of blacksmiths out there that could reshod horses, you know, farriers. And by the time automobile became the primary mode of transportation in North America, 
the smart people were like, I'm going to learn how to fix those things and, you know, start tinkering and get one of them and take it apart, put it back together. They became, you know, successful auto mechanics or they became, you know, they went and did something else. And humans are incredibly resilient about doing that and adapting to those rapid paces of change. It's the the people that are holdouts that are, and that Luddite mentality, those are the ones that struggle the most, but people always kind of come around. Uh, if you know, look through any major technological advancements throughout history, you know, everybody's got to eat. So, you know, you know, I, 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 people all come around and I like to be optimistic in that regard, but uh, boy, it is really hard as people get older uh, uh, to, to acclimate themselves to a new reality. Uh, you know, as, as uh, forward thinking as I like to think of myself as being, uh, you know, I, I, I don't regularly go on TikTok. Right. That's that's, you know, that's, you know, a different a different generation. Uh, and so that that whole that whole uh, uh, framework to say any technology that was built before you're 15 is, is background. Anything that was developed between the time you're 15 and 30 is something you could build a career around. Any technology built after you were 30 is against the law of nature. Uh, right? <laughs> that's, that's, you know, it, that's a that's a real thing, I think, for people so that. The, the 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 place in which people are willing to experiment, I think, has a lot to do with their age. But I really do encourage experimentation with these augmentation technologies in, in whatever form they take. And the current trend is is towards LLMs. Do you build that into your everyday life? Like, do you have an hour a week where you just learn about the cutting edge and play? Uh, so I, I have a couple of different practices, but you know, I I sit on a couple of boards of directors, and I will tell tell other people on the on the board that. They need to have a tab open uh, with ChatGPT to just constantly experiment with what they can use it for, uh, because they'll they'll distinguish what's hard and what's easy, right? And begin to then think about what can be automated and how to integrate that uh, into a larger system. How they need to rethink uh, their processes. That's that's the way I initially approach it, kind of at the leadership level. Well, I know we're we're almost out of time. We didn't even get to half of my questions, but that was semi-expected. Um, so I will quickly summarize and kick it over to Eric for any next steps. We talked about a lot of different things. Um, there are a few tips. One tip was when communicating, try to tell stories. If you want to use farm animals, that's a great option. But if not, just telling stories is a great way to have people understand in, in layman's terms what is going on. Um, moving on from the tips, lots of, lots of high level philosophical discussion. Um, one thing that absolutely hit for me was there's going to sort of this divergence between artisans and people who effectively augment themselves. So if you're going to stay in the, let's say technology industry, you're going to need to learn to use these tools. And if you don't need, or if you don't learn, you will become obsolete. It's, it's kind of a fact, but another route is you can become more of like a creative artist. And um, choosing that path is sort of up to you. Regarding sentience, computers are deterministic and you need probability. And so we're going to be looking at more of a biological tech stack to create sentience. Um, AI will impact command and control. This was really interesting as well. So instead of just taking humans out of the loop and maybe firing off nukes, maybe not, um, instead, AI will be used to augment decision-making and sort of help with that process. There was lots more, but um, Eric, if people want to learn more about you or your work, where should they go? 
Conexus.com is the is Conexus AI's uh, website. Uh, you know, we we represent a, a, a different type of uh, generative AI, one one that is uh, deterministic. When a generative AI, you can bet your life on. So that's that's what Conexus AI does. Conexus.com. Yeah, and if you're really looking to nerd out, they have some great papers on Conexus Research Link, um, and it's thank you. Look in the in the main page and look for the MIT local. You'll you'll see the link to that and have fun reading them. They're they're really good. <laughs> There's a that is that is a bottomless repository. Uh, so yeah, people could definitely reach out if they want to know more about category theory and the, the manifestations of that in commercial enterprise. Sheesh. What a mouthful. All right. Well, I think that's about it. Until next time, it's been Michael Burke and my co-host. Ben Wilson. And have a good day, everyone. See you next time.